You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. I want you to turn in the book of, uh, in your Bible, to the book of Joshua, Joshua 22. We're there again. Joshua 22:10. If you turn to that section in your scriptures, if you don't have one, find one in a chair or around you or before you. And while you're turning there, I got it in. Okay, I had a momentary thought. I didn't get it in the computer. There it is. Go to your tents from Weston. So thank you, Weston, for drawing this. Appreciate when you guys draw pictures of what you're hearing in the sermon. And, and we kind of debated, Weston, was it a tent? Was it home? What was, you know, he said went back to their tents. So he's got a tent, and they are on their way back. It's who's on their way back? It's those tribes of the east, the, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half of Manasseh. And we talked about them They were getting ready last week to head back, Joshua commending them for their faithfulness and then saying, continue, keep going when you get back, walk in the Lord's ways, and then we see them leaving, and that's where we're going to pick up in our text today. Thanks, Weston, for drawing that, turning that into me. I want you to look first at verses 10 through 12. I won't read the whole passage today. Oftentimes, we read through the entire passage today. I'm going to read through a little bit, and then we're going to really just kind of walk through it. Uh, together. It's a longer passage, but just walk through the narrative. And uh, it really is a narrative, by that meaning a story, an account. There's, there's drama here, there's tension, and maybe you'll hear it in these first couple of verses. So Joshua 22, starting at verse 10, God's word says this, And when they came to the region of the Jordan, that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben, And the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Let's pray. Father, as we work through this passage today, we again, as has been prayed, just echoing, agreeing, Lord, would your Holy Spirit work in our hearts to hear from you. There are many, I think, applications as we go along. Uh, vignettes, snippets, Lord, things to learn from this passage, and yet, Lord, ground us in that one thing of worship, of hearts drawn to you, to your presence, and the desire to preserve worship before you, that your glory would be in our lives, that we would know your glory more, we would know you more, And we would come to you boldly because of the cross of Christ. And so guide our time. Again, Lord, we pray you would bless it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I read there, we are in our text. We're facing, we're looking at a nation on the brink of civil war. That's that's what's going on here in these first couple verses. And again, last week, like we said with Weston's picture, we looked at these tribes the call for them, go home, remain faithful to God, love Him, serve Him, this sort of idea, walk in His ways. And it doesn't even seem like these tribes have gotten to their homes before it is assumed 
by the entire nation of Israel that they've gone astray already. So they've not even crossed the border, and they look at him and go, they're already, they're already gone. What happened? And gather everybody, and they're gathering at Shiloh headquarters, getting ready for war. Now, as we go through this passage today and this narrative, this story, I'm going to use the phrases um, east and west. Um, I don't know how often. I didn't add it up at all. But if you hear me referring to the eastern tribes, picture in your mind the dividing river of the Jordan. And on the east side are these tribes, the Reuben, Gad, half of Manasseh. And then on the west side of that Jordan are all the other ten tribes, Half, the other half of Manasseh and the other tribes of Israel, the west side. Some commentaries will call them Transjordan and Cisjordan, C-I-S, Jordan. I don't know. I'm just, it's easier to think east and west. Okay, So it's a battle, really a war, civil war almost looking like here of east and west. That's the situation here. So let's head back into verses 10 through 12. I won't read them again, but just to pull out a few details before we kind of get to, well, what is going on? We've got an altar and, a, and war. We're given two details in verse 10 of the altar. One is where it was built. This is interesting. It was built in the land of Canaan. It, it's not built in the land that these eastern tribes are going to. They didn't build the altar on their side. They built it on the side of Israel, the western tribes. So that's, that's one thing, one detail we see. The second one is just how great this thing is. It's imposing. It's a great altar. This is not something to put on a coffee table. It's big and apparently big enough that word has spread in verse 11, word has spread of this great altar being built. I imagine maybe from certain places they could see it. It was not kind of inconspicuous, kind of down by the river bank and kind of We'll hide it, but it'll be there. It, this is to be known. So, In one sense, it's fulfilling the purpose of the altar. But by verse 12, we've got the nation, the whole assembly of the West, Israel, gathering at Shiloh to make war. The question here, why such a rapid escalation? I mean, it's, it's an altar, right? Why is this so alarming and war would take place? I want you to look again. You're used to this. Where should we go? Probably one of the books of the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy, uh, to look at some background. Go to Deuteronomy 12. Real quick, Deuteronomy 12, uh, verse 10 you can go to. Just to give a little background, what, if we say, what's the big deal about an, an altar? I mean, other altars, maybe we've heard, have been built. And there's some helpful background here for this concern of all of Israel. Here in Deuteronomy 12, verse, there's other verses. I'm just kind of trying to pick a smaller section, verse 10 through 14. Moses is, now we're back. We've gone back in time a little bit. He's prepping Israel to go into the land of promise. That's the, the context where we're at. And here's what verse 10 says to Israel before they ever crossed over the Jordan into the promised land. It says this in Deuteronomy 12, 10. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit. And when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. 
and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that is within your town, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I'm commanding you. Here is the call for one place of worship. Not a land filled with altars for offerings, wherever they they just think, but a one centralized place. Now, other altars, I should say, are going to pop up in the land, but there seems to be a difference between altars that kind of pop up. They're, They're more, I'm thinking, I'm not an expert on this, but they're more remembrance type altars. There was to be only one altar for these burnt offerings, the sacrifice, the the peace offerings. One place is, is the command. And so, if that's in our minds, and if that's in the minds of Israel, we get an idea, why war? They are disobeying a command. It seems like these eastern tribes, without knowing any better, they have built another altar, another place to perform sacrifice. So let's muster for war. This cannot take place. Well, let's keep that in mind, continue the story and the confrontation that takes place, a risky one that begins at verse 13, back in Joshua 22. You turn back there, find verse 13. So what happens? Well, then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. And I'll just stop there, make a few comments. Israel, the west side, they do something here that really should be part of every single conflict, even in our lives. Before launching all-out war, they seek to know the situation. What's going on? It's a good thing they do. But they're ready to pounce. In their wisdom, they send a delegation to investigate. And it's interesting, if you look here, who makes up this delegation? There's, there's these leaders of the tribal families here of Israel. But prominent, the prominent leader here is not Joshua. Joshua's been mentioned all through this book. It's Joshua. It's, jo- it's him. It's him. And along comes now we've got Phineas. I believe, if I'm right, this is the first place Phineas is even mentioned in this book. He's the son of Eleazar, he, the, the priest. So there's this representative of the priesthood, which I guess makes sense in terms of if this is a sacrifice, let's send the priest, and he leads them. But here's why I think Phineas is showcased and we don't see Joshua. And it's not that Joshua couldn't do what Phineas does, but when you want to squash a rebellion, you call Phineas. He's like what we call the enforcer. You've got a rebellion going on, who do we pick? It's Phineas. We're going to see why in just a little bit. But he enforces devotion to God alone. We'll look at that in just a little bit. I've got to wait to get there. But then also verse 15 
One more thing before we look at kind of what they say to the people is that this delegation takes a risk to confront the eastern tribes. They take a risk here. You see where they went to? They didn't stay in their land, in the land of Canaan. They went to the land of Gilead. That's the territory of what I think they're supposing to be rebels. That's where they go into. So in order to judge rightly, they take a risk, walk, however, across the Jordan into, might we say, enemy territory to get an idea of the situation. And here, again, as we think of even conflict in our own lives and conflict resolution, which I think can kind of be seen throughout. I don't think it's the main point, but we can see it throughout that it's right here to take some risk, to take risk to confront someone that we suppose to be in sin. We, we suppose that we look and, yeah, it looks like this is sinful. We want to, what's going on? What's the situation? And there's a risk, isn't there? Maybe it's less risky to go, I don't know, it's war. Just let's be done with them. Maybe that's easier, but the risk is what's to walk into their territory. What's going on? What's the story? Well, before they hear their reply, this delegation from the West makes their own observations. Here's what they think is going on, and it's in verse 16. And following, I'll just read, I'll start at 16 here. Here's what they say to them in the land of Gilead, the western delegation to the east. Thus, verse 16, thus says the whole congregation of the Lord. What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves? And for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. And now you see, if we're thinking we might not remember, but you see why Phineas is here. You don't have to go there, but Numbers 25 records this sin that happened at Peor in which Israel was drawn away. They were whoring after the daughters of Moab. They were drawn away from the worship of the Lord to sacrifice to other gods, to bow down to other gods. And guess who was there? Phineas, who it says he, he was jealous with God's sort of jealousy for God's name, for God's worship, Phineas was at that point, and he's the one that took a spear and he killed both an Israelite man and a Midianite woman who were in open rebellion to the Lord. That was Phineas. And so it makes sense that he's here now, part of this delegation. He's going to deal with this because it seems like they're in rebellion. The accusation here of rebellion is this breach of faith. Do you see the words in there? Breach of faith, verse 16. What is this breach of faith? And it's defined in verse 16 as a turning away from following the Lord. So faith is either believing God and following Him, or it is breached and broken and in rebellion to Him. It's, it's not neutral. It's faith that bears fruit. It's the fruit of following 
or the lack of faith, the breach of faith, sin. And no matter what it is, it's really a breach of faith, transgression against the Lord, says, I'm going to do my own thing, even though God has spoken otherwise. So all sin is failing to believe God and therefore obey God. So the breach of faith is in rebellion, rebellion against the Lord. And what Israel fears, this delegation and all of them, is that this breach of faith, this rebellion of the East, is going to bring about God's wrath, really on everyone. So look at what they offer to these tribes in verse 19. With that in mind, they say, But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, Pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. And that makes sense because we looked at Deuteronomy. Verse 20, Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel? And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. So another example of rebellion is given, that of Achan. We looked at him in chapter 7. And you can hear this delegation pleading with, with the tribes of the east, don't rebel, follow the Lord. Even if where you live is, is unclean, and perhaps they assume the altar is meant as kind of this sacrificial place to, to purify them and their land, even if it's unclean, we're going to make room for you. Come back over. What the delegation offers here. It's an offer of grace. If it's the land, if it's the land's problem, come live with us. Come to the land where God's presence through the tabernacle at this time is and take a possession among us. I wonder if that's how we deal with folks in our lives that seem to have wandered away or we see them in sin or rebellion. There's grace here. They, they confront the sin. There's grace to confront the sin and there's grace to be willing. I think these tribes to say, we'll give up some of our inheritance. We'll give up our possession that you might come. We want to honor the Lord. Come back. We're, we're willing to go this extra step, this grace toward them for the sake of their brothers and, and really the sake of following the Lord. I don't know if we deal with conflict that way. I mean, we kind of, if, if you're like me, I just want my own way. In this. I'm not thinking of, I'll give this up because I just I want you to worship and not be in rebellion. We don't want to have God's wrath on us. There's grace here. And I think at the heart of this delegation, I think we can see they are seeking to preserve worship. God's presence, it's already among them, but it is threatened by the rebellion of these eastern tribes. And so, They are intent on saying, preserve worship of the Lord. And this looks like apostasy. This looks like you're going away from the Lord. We want to preserve that. And so they make this passionate call to not rebel. And so far, we don't know yet. It's just left. This is part of why this is just good reading. We don't know why they've done this. Nothing's told us yet other than these tribes have made a big deal and they're ready to go to war. We don't know the real motives but we learn them starting in verse 21. Look at verse 21. Then the people of Reuben, 
the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the Mighty One, God, the Lord, the Mighty One, God, the Lord, He knows and let Israel itself know if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord. Do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. We'll pause there. You see the emphatic here, this belief of the eastern tribes. It remains. They were called to faithfulness. It remains. They say, the mighty one, God, he's the Lord. Again and again. One commentator says here, with the strongest of oaths, they confirm that they have no intention to worship any other deity at the altar. And this is the first message of their reply. Not always our first words when we're confronted. They, they didn't say, how could you accuse us of this? Don't you remember what Joshua said? Or, or you're getting us all wrong, or we're offended by your confrontation. We're prone to that. Their emphasis, the first words out of their mouth is the mighty one, the Lord, God, he's the Lord. That's their emphasis. They declare he's still our God. And then they agree, yes, if we did this in rebellion, let God's vengeance come. We agree with you on that. And then we get an explanation. Again, so far we've not heard the why But now verses 24 through 28, I'll read a little bit longer here. 24 through 28, think about this. Now why? Why did you guys build this imposing altar? Verse 24, here's what they answer. No. Right? No, we're worshiping the Lord. No, we didn't do it in spite of the Lord. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children... What have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in His presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Their fear is that in time to come, children of the West would disown the children of the East because of this Jordan, this boundary. And essentially, the fear is that those children would say, you have no portion in the Lord. That's their fear. In essence, you're no longer His people. You don't have a portion here. So they build an altar for the purpose of witness. But who's it a witness to? It's an altar of witness. Who are they witnessing to? I think it's both east and west for generations so that there remains for their children a portion in the Lord 
and to make sacrifice in the presence of the Lord. And I think the idea of the presence of the Lord where his tabernacle is, not at this copied altar, but the real altar place. So verse 28 summarizes, it's not an altar for sacrifice. That's, that's what helps us understand what kind of altar is this, but it's an altar for witness. It's a copy of the one in Shiloh to show there's a connection between these tribes. So verse 29 summarizes in this way. Look at verse 29. They say, Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord, our God, that stands before his tabernacle. They declare here their continued faithfulness to God. Joshua, he's already commended them for this in verse 3. And they agree. The only real altar of sacrifice, it's the one at the tabernacle. This is a copy. So far from being in rebellion, these tribes are seeking what? The continued worship of the Lord for their children, for the generations after them. And the tone, I think, becomes joyful, you might say, as these western tribes respond. Look at verse 30. When Phinehas, the priest, and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. It's good in their eyes. And Phinehas, I'll keep reading verse 31, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. You kind of hear maybe just even in the text just a sense of, wow, okay, we thought this was going bad and it's totally different than what we thought. It's good in our eyes. We're seeing the Lord in our midst. You've not committed a breach of faith, these sorts of things. And verse 31 explains what the delegation saw. They saw a right explanation for what was going on. And what they really saw, this is interesting, they saw the Lord in their midst. Do you see that? Today we know that the Lord is in our midst. And we ask, how do you know the Lord is in your midst? And how they know is they see God in their midst because these tribes have not broken faith against the Lord. It appeared like a rebellion, turns out to be reverence. And so they see the preserving hand of God in their midst and the relief. These tribes didn't turn away. They're still following the Lord. They want their children to follow the Lord. Who knew that our faithfulness to God testifies to his presence? I think that's what's going on here. They, they see the Lord through faithfulness to God. There's multiple ways to see the Lord in the, in the Scriptures, and we see this different appearances, these sorts of things. Here, by someone's faithfulness to God, they go, the Lord is in our midst. We see Him working, preserving His people. Continued faithfulness testifies to the keeping hand, not of us, i got to keep, but to God's keeping hand of us on His people. And so, in verses 32 and 33, this account kind of comes back full circle. 
in the beginning, we started with the east, building uh, the altar, imposing size, and then we see the west gathering together to, to make war. And now those two are going to be flipped around in 32 and 33, and it starts with the west. So look at 32 uh, through 33 here. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and the chiefs returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad in the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel, and brought back word to them. So they had heard the word before. They got ready for war. Now what's the report? Verse 33, the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. They come back, they give word, and war is abated here. God used a brave delegation who sought the facts, and they averted, I think, certain civil war. So that has changed. Now, what's the other? They built this altar. Now verse 34 takes us back to one last scene. Verse 34, you've got the tribe, the delegation has gone home, war is ceasing, everybody's kind of heading home from Shiloh. Okay, it's not, they've been, we've seen the Lord, they've been faithful. What do they do here? The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness for, they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. Here in the last four words of this chapter, we find the words, the Lord is God. Here stands an altar, was to be the basis of an all-out civil war with these tribes, tribes who had just been commended for their faithfulness. It was going to be a place of bloodshed, but instead it's a place of witness. They witness what? Not, oh, we're getting along. The witness is the Lord is God. Two takeaways as we leave these tribes and their spots on the west and east of the Jordan. Just two, two takeaways as we, as we look at this passage. A, a longer passage. We've just kind of gone through, told the story, looked at a few details. One, one is, as, we, as I've talked about, how to deal with conflict. There, there are some ways of dealing with conflict in here that are helpful. One is assumptions. The assumption was these guys have fallen away from the faith, they've broken faith, and this is what's going on. Grab your spears, we're going to war. And, and they were right They were right to see an altar and, and go about it, but the Lord kept them from actually walking out and taking place in this before they sent this delegation who risked something, risked their lives, you might say, to go to the rebels and confront them personally and get a better idea of what's going on. We saw grace through here. Grace in their lives. Hey, don't do this. If, if you want a spot, we'll give you our spot. Don't go down this road. And then the relief as that conflict is resolved. Oh, it's not that. Wonderful. Sometimes it is. Sometimes we're right. But, oh, we've got to be careful in our assumptions. There's a story I read of a police officer that was... Uh, coming home from a long day um, at work and lots of frustrations with people and lots of stuff going on. He was coming home. He was just about 
to get to his house and, and, you know, kick his feet back, watch some TV, have supper, all this sort of thing. Just getting ready to go home. He's driving, kind of in his neighborhood. Another car just comes speeding around the corner and yells out the window to him, pig, and keeps driving on. Well, that police officer, I mean, right? It's just fire. You don't call me pig. And he spray, putting on the brakes, turn around, this sort of thing. As he's getting ready to turn around, he runs smack dab into a pig. It was that he was right. The guy yelling pig was accurate. Pig, it's there. But there was an assumption. You're calling me that. Instead of going, I mean... It's kind of hard in that moment. Do you mean, really mean I'm a pig or is there a pig? I mean, you've got to sort that out. But there's danger to our assumptions, especially in conflict. Let's be people that go, hmm, I don't know. Let's be slow to that. Speaking to myself, but listen in. <laughs> so conflict, how to resolve it, it's on display in this passage. But I, I don't think if we just go... This is a passage to help us learn about conflict. That's it. Um, let me just mention a little advertisement. We do have these, they look kind of like brochures on peacemaking. We've talked about this before, conflict resolution. It's, it affects all of us. They're helpful. They're out in the, in the, the entrance out there. Um, pick those up for some helpful ways of how to deal with conflict. If this kind of speaks to you and you're in one of those situations and maybe you need some more help, some biblical help, those can be a help. But again, this passage, not, I don't think primarily about that. I think primarily the heart of the matter is that of worship. Worship. The presence of God among His people, to be in the presence of God, to, ask, to have access to the presence of God was so important to the eastern tribes that they were willing to build a huge altar to preserve it for their children. That's what they were preserving. They said, we want our kids to have a portion in the Lord. It's the idea, I think, of worship, of desiring the Lord. That was important to them. But God's presence was also important to the Western tribes that they were willing to go to war to preserve it. Both sides. It's amazing. They both were seeking to preserve worship, access to, to the presence of God in their lives. Both of them were willing to take steps to preserve his presence among them. Willing to confront, take risk, build an altar to remember. What steps for you are you willing to preserve the presence of God in your life among you? Are you willing to confront somebody else? Take that risk. Think of your own home even to guard your own life? What steps are you willing to take to cross over, to risk, whatever, to guard your heart in worship of the Lord, to be in His presence? Guard your own body or to us leaders in our families, to guard your family. A little bit of postscript here. No mere physical altar is going to preserve worship unless God preserves it in the heart. Sadly, though they had an altar, these tribes would fall away in time. I, can't, I don't know the, the year amount, how many years later it was, but they would fall away. And man needs more than just zeal to worship. We need a rebirth. 
to be born again. We need the gospel for what we build so often. We're not building altars of remembrance to the Lord. We are. I mean, these are times. That's why this is so important to come together to worship. Oh, yes, that's the God I love. That's who I'm going to serve. But we rather we build altars to other gods, sports, leisure, rest, food, yourself, fill in the blank. We need to be born again. So the question for you, have you been born again in Christ? He died on the cross for rebels, those in rebellion against him. He died. Grace ultimately was on display at the cross. And he obeyed perfectly that we might share in his righteousness. We have no claim of righteousness on our own. So if you're far from God, if you've made altars to other things in your life, then do repent and turn. If you've breached faith, turn and follow the Lord. Seek Him and look to Jesus. For those who say, I've been born again. Say, Christ through His Spirit, He lives in me. Then, then by God's grace and His power, work with all your might and preserve worship in your life. Listen to these comfort. They're often comforting words from Lamentations 3. But maybe hear them a little differently when we think of portion. I mean, the, the, the eastern tribes were worried about their children having a portion in the Lord. Here's what the familiar verses of Lamentations 3 says. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And then he goes on to say, the Lord is my portion says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Let me pray for us. Father, I imagine in each of our lives there are conflicts that are going on even this day. And when the word conflict is mentioned, things just come to mind so quickly. Lord, I pray we would deal with them like what was dealt with here. We would confront with boldness and with grace, taking risk with our friends or family, Lord, for the sake of worship. Not so we get our own way, but for the sake of worship. So help us, Lord. When we are in a conflict, when we are close to it, oh, Lord, help our assumptions. May we be like you who is slow to anger, who has new mercies every morning. Lord, help us not to keep a record of wrongs, to be patient and kind. And Father, ultimately, Lord, preserve worship in our own hearts. Lord, may we see by your Spirit, may you show us areas that are leading us astray, altars that are bad altars, that don't remind us of you, they remind us of self and they worship us or something else. Lord, show us those altars and may we tear them down. And when somebody would come and say, you've got an altar that needs to be torn down, may we not reject them, but welcome the confrontation and the advice and the admonishment. Lord, guide us as a family of believers here at Bethany to worship you, to preserve worship for the generations that we would love your presence more than anything else. We would treasure you. We ask this in your name.
listening to Bethany Radio, a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota.